And he was probably, I'm not kidding, he was probably like six yards. Oh, wow. And so by the time I draw and he cleared this tree, I let it fly and it just whap. I mean, hit him hard. And it it was so cool because I hit him and he started uh, spinning out and he was kicking up rocks in our face. That's how close he was oh, when wow. he turned to spin. And my buddy who was kind of up behind me, about got ran over. He had to dive out of the way. <laughs> and so he like dives off and he gets up all wide and he looks at me and goes, did you see that? <laughs> hey, fellow elk fanatics. If you're completely obsessed with elk hunting like me, then join me every Wednesday for tips, tactics, and stories on elk hunting from elk hunting legends to fellow DIYers. This is the Rich Outdoors Wapiti Wednesday. It's good. Good beer? Yeah. I like it. I like a good wit. Yeah? Yeah. So, welcome to the podcast. Good buddy. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We just did a, we did a podcast not that long ago. Yeah, it wasn't too long ago. Talking about about uh, yeah, sheep and goats and, and mountains and... Yeah, we talked about like pretty much trophy species the entire time. Yeah. So now you're out of the running for that. Yeah. <laughs> On the sidelines for a few years. <laughs> uh, I guess introduce yourself for those who don't know, if they yeah. missed the last podcast. Yeah, my name's uh, Justin Helvick. I'm a native Montana, born and raised here in Montana, fourth uh, generation. I'm an educator, is actually my primary job. I'm a principal out in Three Forks, Montana, and... Uh, but uh, at my roots, I'm definitely a homegrown Montanan who loves the outdoors, climbing, canyoneering, and first and foremost, hunting. So, <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, what order do you put those in? Um, hunting is number one for me. Are you talking education too? Uh, or they're all passions. So, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you hate to say that because you can't really be like, well, I don't really care about Yeah, that. I can't say I don't like kids when I <laughs> yeah. work, <laughs> which yeah. I do. Um, but as far as my, my outdoor pursuits, let's go with that. Well, even my, my education career is tied into the outdoors because I originally went to school to be a big game biologist um, at Rocky Mountain College. And I found out at the time it was really difficult to get into that field. And mm-hmm. so I transitioned into education. Like my sophomore year, I decided to go into biology education. So it was still tied to the outdoors. I've always had a love for the outdoors. Um, and, I, and I truly do love working with young people. And so that was, uh, ended up being uh, something I certainly don't regret. I love it. And then just happened to end up in an administration role now, which is really fun because I kind of got my hands in everything and get to work with a lot of different kids and teachers. But it all started with the outdoors uh, for me. But as far as the other pursuits, um, I would definitely say hunting is, is my favorite. And then mountaineering would be there. Uh, more big mountains, not so much rock climbing, uh, although I do do that and a little bit of ice climbing. Uh, and then canyoneering is a close right right there with mountaineering. What is the difference between canyoneering and mountaineering? So mountains, you're going up, and canyoning, you're going down. Um, so oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So canyons, you you, you so do when you a, hit the bottom and go back up, is it now mountaineering? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose you could call it that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, you just got back from yeah, just, a trip to the Grand Canyon. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I got back from the Grand Canyon where you hike down a ways and you run these uh, usually slot canyons, um, and you have to be pretty good at, I guess, rappelling is the main thing. So you're, you're hiking down, climbing, and then rappelling off and down these waterfalls and slot canyons. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, we rappelled basically 
all the way down to the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. That's awesome. And then we had to climb back out of there. So That is really cool. Yeah. Did you rappel with a raft? Um, we didn't this trip. We were The original plan was to do about a five-day trip where yeah. we were going to do about uh, three canyons. And part of that would have included about a 10-mile pack raft trip. But um, unfortunately, uh, they've had a ton of moisture this year. In our original plans, we had to kind of punt because... Um, there was a flash flood warning, and that's one thing about canyoneering. Yeah. You get in some of those slot canyons, there's literally no way to climb out. You just have to keep going down, and flash flood, you would, well, you'd end up. You'd go down too fast. You'd go down way too fast. <laughs> yeah. and it unfortunately, happens probably every year, every couple of years, somebody gets caught. No kidding. In a slot canyon, yeah. No way. That happened to me actually on an elk hunt in New Mexico. It was just in this canyon. It wasn't like a big canyon, but it turned into a river. Yep. And it was like, oh, like that's crazy how fast it can happen. Yeah, and it's crazy. You're in those, and sometimes you're in narrow areas where you're only like shoulder width apart. Yeah. I mean, and you're brushing up against the wall, so there's nowhere to go, and it's vertical walls 300 feet up, and you can't climb back up once you rappel down. You pull your ropes down, you know, because you take them with you yeah, to, yeah. The next, to the next wrap station. So the so only way out Only down. way out is down. Yeah. Once you pull your uh, rope. So you got to be really yeah. careful and watch your weather. Yeah, you do. And so that's that canceled our bigger plans. Um, uh, so we just did a couple of smaller technical canyons. Still tough canyons to do, but they were just uh, safer because we didn't have the thunderstorm warning in those areas. So For sure. It was still fun. So, oh, dude, there's so much we could dive into. We're going to do Wabati Wednesday, and I always have so many questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, smart, dude. But uh, as an educator, would you consider yourself a good learner? Yeah, I, I'd always say the best educators are your lead learners. Um, anybody who thinks, obviously, they know it all, I think is a fool, right? Yeah. So the best part about being a principal really is I get to see all the classrooms and I get to learn so many things. And um, I taught science, you know, biology and uh, chemistry was my major and minor. But when you're a principal, you get to go into other um, classrooms and you get to learn everything from math to world history to government. And I learned so much from my teachers and even from the kids, really. And that's the best part about my job. Hmm. And I think when kids and teachers see that you're passionate about learning and that you're willing to learn and and uh, still have that just excitement when you get in a room, I think that rubs off on people, too. And I think that's partly what makes a good leader. So. No, that's, a, that's a great point. And I think it's like you have a lot of experience in that realm, which is going to be fun because we're going to talk a little bit about kind of your entry into elk hunting, mm-hmm. not growing up. I mean, growing up very Eastern Montana, yeah. not a lot of elk hunting and yep. didn't have that background. And, but I think this could be applicable to both elk hunting and like your mountaineering and, and everything else you've kind of just learned after the fact or like push yourself into. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that fascinates me is like the speed at which you can learn, like trying to shave the learning curve. And mm-hmm. within hunting specifically, like if you were to say rock climbing or mountaineering or something along those lines, you could learn it via just basically submersing yourself a lot, as much as you can year round. With elk hunting, it's very difficult because you can only submerge yourself for 30 days tops. But even then, most people can't do that on a consecutive basis. And right. so like trying to like, I'm always interested in like, how do you go... Because, you know, I talk to a lot of people that take five years to kill their first elk, six years to kill their yep. first elk. And it's like, man, how do you, like, as an educator, if you were to design a program or design something, like, what would be the key features to shave time off a learning curve? I think the biggest thing really is, um, I, I might have talked about this a little bit the last time I met, but I think 
you have to be a student of the game, no matter what it is. Um, and I'm one of those people that definitely is uh, only have those weekends as an educator. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned like a 30, 30 day season. I'm lucky to get, you know, yeah. six days a season. And I, and I got to capitalize on those six days and I've been pretty fortunate. And lo- imagine it, learning anything else yeah. though. and being like, I get six days a year to learn this. Yeah. Ah, that's crazy. Yeah. And I think the first part is admitting, you know, nothing. Yeah. And, then, sure. and then taking every piece will just be a sponge, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's what the best learners are people who admit and actually ask for help and mm-hmm. kind of check that ego at the door. Because if yeah. you come in thinking you know everything and you're not willing to take that advice or willing to learn, or if you're not coachable, so to speak, you're going to have a lot harder time, you know? And so I think you sometimes, we all, as human beings, uh, we as guys and sometimes as hunters, we have these big egos and we want to talk about, you know, how big an elk or how big a deer we shot. But yeah. in reality, at some point, we all started somewhere. And yeah. if you're willing to kind of, check that ego out the door. It's a lot. I think you learn a lot faster and just, I always tell people when I'm trying to learn something new, like when I started canyoneering, uh, wasn't that long ago. I told my friends, well, teach me like I know absolutely nothing. Like uh, break it down for me. Like you would to a a three-year-old and then, uh, you know, and just be humble about it. I think that's a huge help. Which I think is really true because you get like, this is especially true with like shooting sports or something. If someone's shot a lot, they're harder to teach how to shoot than if you have no experience. And I would say maybe similarly, if you have a little bit of or hunting experience in general, it -hmm. could be harder in some capacities yet easier in others, you know, understanding animal behavior is not something you just teach. Like that's something you kind of have to experience. So that's kind of hard to like get over that. And I think that's what a lot of where the time comes from is learning animal behavior. Yeah, would you agree? I would agree wholeheartedly, really. And I had a hard time, you know, when I first jumped into uh, elk hunting. I'd be the first to admit now that I think I came in, you know, because I hunted hard growing up, but I was pretty much in North Dakota, to be honest. (laughs) Virtually. Yeah. And hunted a lot of mule deer, a lot of antelope, turkeys, pheasants. Mm -hmm. Um, But elk, I didn't really get to experience until I was in high school. I drew a cow elk tag over in the, the breaks, and I was unsuccessful. I went with some guys and they shot a cow and that was the first time I ever seen one of those creatures up close like that. <laughs> just amazed. And, you know, I, I never went again or really was successful until I was actually, um, even outside of college until I was in my teaching career at that time. Oh, really? So I was in my mid twenties by the time I actually shot my first elk. And so it, took, it was a long learning curve. And I think part of my mistake was going in thinking, you know, I'm chasing an antelope or a mule deer and I, and I wasn't, you know, so. What advice do you have um, for people who have spent a lot of time hunting other animals but are new to elk hunting? I think I'd um, go back. If you can find somebody who's willing to take you out and and just do kind of what we talked about earlier and just say, hey, I I don't know anything. Uh, Treat me like a three-year-old or, you know, and teach me, you know, like this is how you approach from here. This is when you call, this is when you don't call, this is where you need to be in the morning, or this is, you know, use this tactic here, whether it's spot and stock, or if you're hunting during the rut, I I knew absolutely nothing about calling elk in the rut. And, you know, I still remember the first time my brother-in-law took me out and I was just wide eyed and I, yeah, it was crazy. Um, And he didn't know a whole lot either. And so neither one of us, we're kind of stumbling around. I think Mm -hmm. it was in the little belt mountains and in Montana and we stumbled around and actually got lucky and called in this bull and I couldn't even knock an arrow. I mean, it was, <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? yeah, it, it was pretty dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> did, 
Did that kind of like increase or change that make a shift in you that like, is this something I want to learn? Yeah. That you kind of like started. Cause I remember it, a transition for me was definitely you know, like you learn how to hunt. I learned how to hunt from my dad. My dad taught me a lot. My cousins taught me a lot. And like, there was always like this gap. Like you understand that you can learn things from books, but I never really put the pieces together to like, this is also something I can learn from a book. Um, and I'd read every magazine probably ever came out. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom worked for a dentist office and they always had hunting magazines. So I got all the leftover hunting magazines. So I had a, like subscription to every hunting magazine growing up. I was yep. lucky in that way. But then I remember the first time I found a book on it was, I forget the name of it. You and I were talking earlier and it, it, it might be the same book you were like, that was your first book. Yeah. And I think it was like elk and elk hunting. It was, it was over 20 years ago though. Yeah. It was a long, yeah. mine was a long time ago. I remember reading that and being like, Oh, and then I just wanted to like suck up every piece of information, mm-hmm. but it was like a weird transition for me to go from just basically learning via like someone teaching me which has its pros and cons, right? Like they obviously have limited amount of experience. Like, but right. there's a certain point you can like cross that, you know, my cousins, they kind of learned on their own. And, you know, I was fairly self-taught when it came to calling and elk, like bow hunting elk. Cause my dad was a rifle hunter. And so like when I remember when I picked up a book and it was like, just enamored with it. And then I kind of like went down that rabbit hole of just wanting to learn everything. Yep. I'm kind of the same way. Um, when I go into something, it's almost like I obsess about it. Mm. And so I remember when I was in junior high and high school, there was like this, uh, you remember those old, uh, back in the eighties and nineties and you could order like the CDs, like a monthly membership. Oh yeah. I remember one time they came out with a, uh, um, an outdoor book thing where every month they would send you these hunting books. And so I subscribed to That's that. Awesome. So like every month I was getting in these books and I just soak it in. Like yeah. I just, you know, dive off, you know, head first into everything I could. And, you know, back then there, there wasn't like the World Wide web, you yeah. know? And so we did, <laughs> I mean, that came out, I think a little bit later uh, in my high school years, but um, that's how I, I started was like, well, what's, what's this elk creature, you know, and I'd hear about them and there was some stuff on TV and whatever, but definitely, I think that's good. A good way to start. I mean, it's no, um, substitution to experience obviously but i think it helps having at least a little baseline of knowledge when you go out with somebody or you see something then it kind of clicks and you can align those two parallels like oh yeah i read about that that's what that Mm. looks like or sounds like you know and so well now there's so much information with podcasts it's like not even crazy now now we're like in this information overload where it's hard sometimes to sift through it you know that's an interesting fact too because i had this conversation with lampers the other day that I think it's easier for people to consume someone's content. That's like, here's how you do it. You know, A to B, A to Z, whatever you want to call it. Like, here's how you should do it. And it's tough because like, I'm kind of a student of all the aspects. So you have like, let's just say the elk nut or Corey Jacobson. Um, and they're like, you know, and it works like that is a great way to do it. But there's also a lot of other ways. You look at like what Sean does and Sean doesn't even know, own a bugle or know how to use one, you know, and it's obviously yeah, very successful. Right? But if you're like, well, there's a lot of ways to do it that just confuses people. And so like you go back to this like information overload and yeah. it's like, well, what's right? I don't know that there's a right answer. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a matter of like what fits your personality and fits your style. I think that's a huge piece of it. And like, you know, like for, I am not a guy who's going to sit at a water hole, you know, and, and I knew that about myself growing up, um, you know, hunting mule deer. I, I, 
there were times I should have been patient. I probably would have shot a lot more big deer when I was younger, but, um, yeah, I found that in a hurry. Cause a lot of people said early season said a water hole and I just have a hard time doing that. Yeah. Um, I think that's it though. Like there's so much out there, which is really nice. And I, and I'm a, I listen to several podcasts every week, uh, including yours. And then, you know, everything from, you know, Lampers to Meteor to Corey Jacobson and, the, you know, his elk podcast or whatever he's got going with Randy Newberg and elk talk. Yeah. Elk talk. Going, yeah. yeah. And you take all that in and it is almost like, like, like we said, it's like you get so almost overwhelmed now. It's like, yeah. okay, do I do this in this scenario or this in this scenario? Yeah. And I think it's just kind of finding what does work for you. Uh, um, and just, there's no, once again, there's no substitution for just getting out and doing it. And sometimes you just got to take that leap yeah. and, and make your own mess ups and screw ups. Yeah. Cause it's going to happen. And I think that's still the best way to learn, but. Hey guys, quick interruption. If you want to be a damn good elk hunter, you need at bats. And if you want to be consistently getting at bats, you need to be into elk. Recently, I sat down and developed my four-step system on how to be a 201 level hunter. And it's a framework that you can build off of with any tactic in really any hunt, not just elk. This system is developed by interviewing hundreds of the best hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own experience. Some of the best hunters in the world have gone through this and told me, this puts into words what took me 20 years to develop. If you're interested, check it out. Links in the show notes, course.therichoutdoors.net. So what, like, if you were, say I was brand new, if, mm-hmm. hey, Justin, teach me like I'm a three-year-old who knows nothing, but I listen to a million podcasts. And I'm like, man, there's very conflicting information out there or tactics. Like, what should I go with? Right. What would you tell me? Well, I would tell you, I'd be like, well, Cody, this is what works for me. Yeah. You know, and I think it's important to point out, um, you know, there, there's no linear path. I think when you're an elk hunter, it's, it's not linear. It's, it's not straight. You're going to be up, you're going to be down. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for everybody to recognize that. And when you take someone out who's uh, a novice or young or whatever it is, it's important to kind of let them know that. Tell them up front, like, you're going to mess this up more times than you're going to get it right. <laughs> because the worst thing you can do is be like, yep, every th- every video you've watched, every YouTube video yeah. you've watched, this is how it is. Because yeah. as you and I know now, it's, it's not like that. I mean, you're going to have so many uh, screw-ups before you actually capitalize <sighs> on an opportunity. I don't know how many elk I blew out before I actually, especially bow hunting, like before I actually got. How many of these it was? Oh, I don't know. It's too many to count. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I remember like in the early years, I was probably in my young 20s, and I had legitimate opportunities at six-point bulls. Every single year, should have killed mm-hmm. six-point bulls. And I remember I being so frustrated, like, man, if I – and this is when I cared how many bulls I'd killed, you know? like So I was just like, man, if I would have this or that in that scenario, and just like just, just beating myself up over stuff that happened three years ago because I didn't fill the tag that year or whatever it may be. And now it's like comical. Like I just yeah. laugh at it. I remember I took my sister. Uh, she kind of got nailed kind of – she killed a bull with a rifle. No interest in hunting. Kills a bull with a rifle like on our property, uh, on her property. And – gets into it and then she wants an archery hunt and like probably i didn't even take it the first year but probably second year or something i take her hunting we call him a giant just a toad and he comes to like 18 yards she's like i don't even know if she looked through her peep you know just full-on shot way over and like we're i heard a smack and it sounded good but it was just kind of a weird scenario and i go back and we're looking for stuff and she's just like 
can't believe I missed. I can't believe, like just beating yourself up. And I'm just laughing. Like this is going to happen so many times in your life. Like the, the first one, it's almost better that you didn't smack a giant bowl <laughs> day one of oh, your yeah, first yeah. time ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like it's just comical. It's like, I think people beat themselves up over, you know, those mistakes, those missed opportunities when, man, it seems like you got to have a few of those. <laughs> yeah. And that's the biggest thing is when you're taking someone out is let them know that it's, it's not all rainbows and unicorns when you start mm. and it's, you're going to be miserable at times and it's going to be frustrating at times, but it makes it all the sweeter. I mean, it's like, you got to remember like it will be that much sweeter when it actually does happen and yeah. you'll never forget the first time it all comes together for you. Do you remember your first bowl you killed with the bow? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Let's hear it. Yeah. So I was hunting in Southeast Montana. Um, so I'm, you're talking, I'm 29 or 30 by the time I actually, uh, oh, wow. yeah, shot w- with, uh, I shot several with a rifle before that. Um, but I'll never forget that I was with uh, a guy who had never hunted in his life. This young, <laughs> this young guy. And he's like, Oh, I really want to go. And I was like, well, sure. You know, I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and we just got lucky. Um, actually it started out, I was actually mule deer hunting the day before it was like Friday. I got off work early. I jet out to the spot and lo and behold, there's like, I found this little honey hole out in the middle of nowhere. Um, just elk going nuts and bugling and I'm sitting there and I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And I was like, well, I got to give it a go. You know, yeah. I, I had been, um, bow hunting a couple of times, but wasn't successful. So I told him, I said, well, I'm going to grab my calls. Uh, and, and at the time I, I was using a hoochie mama, yeah. uh, you know, from, you know, the, uh, I didn't know. And so, Went out, and it was just amazing because there's probably five or six bulls down in this drainage, and there's a few cows to watch the satellites, and I'm sitting there going crazy. We're there at first light. I set up a little bit of ways up this uh, little coulee, and I, I sit down, and it's like, well, I guess I just start making cow calls and, like, not really knowing. And all of a sudden, I have, like, three different bulls coming in. And, <laughs> and I remember looking, and I look back my – my buddy and his eyes are like the size of apples. And he's like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I remember one bull was coming in. He had this goofy looking club right below me. And I was like, okay, he's going to come and he's going to give me a shot. And I'm like about shaking sitting there. And then all of a sudden I hear something off to my left, like a stick snap and I snap in about, you know, coming in less than 20 yards is another bull. And he's kind of quartering to me. So I swing and I draw before he clears. And when I shot, I mean, it happened so fast. <laughs> and these elk were, they're really stupid, you know? <laughs> and he was probably, I'm not kidding. He was probably like six yards. Oh, wow. And so by the time I draw and he cleared this tree, I let it fly and it just whap. I mean, hit him hard. And it, it was so cool because I hit him and he started, uh, spinning out and he was kicking up rocks in our face. That's how close he was oh, when wow. he turned to spin. And my buddy who was kind of up behind me, about got ran over. He had to dive out of the way. <laughs> and so he like dives off and he gets up all wide and he looks at me. He goes, did you see that? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I sure did. <laughs> you know? And, uh, you know, that was it. And I was so close. I, I couldn't mess. You yeah. Know? And, uh, yeah. 30 minutes later we found him and that was it. Just know? hooked. Did yeah. That, did the guy was, get hooked too? Yeah. Yeah, he did. He, um, <laughs> yeah, he ended up coming on a few, quite a few more hunts with me after that. And that's crazy. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Six yards. Yeah. Six yards. First bull. First time ever really calling on my own and just, 
it, and a lot of it was luck, but I mean, yeah, I've yeah. been out a few times and I guess our setup was good and uh, yeah. So you kind of like get the bug or whatever and you start to like, okay, how do I figure this out? Like what you start trying different taxes and things like that. Like what, what stuck with you? What didn't stick with you? One of the things that I find interesting is that when you moved, when I moved to Montana, most people here like anti-calling. Yeah. Doesn't like, don't do that or whatever. So like, did you have that mixed information? I mean, it seems like coming from Eastern Montana, you'd Mm -hmm. get this like, well, don't call. Yeah. Well, the thing is, nobody really uh, even taught me that. So I didn't know any better. (laughs) And so I was out there just hammering away at calls. (laughs) And uh, I think that's a lot more fun. But I've been in situations too then where uh, definitely overcalled and blew it. And so I think it's, you learn to read the temperature. I Mm -hmm. think of the elk more than anything. And I definitely think it's a lot more fun personally. So I'm one of people against the grain in Montana where I, I do love calling. Yeah. Um, I like to throw out some bugles and the last bull I shot in archery, which was two years ago. The one I shot last year was um rifle, but two years ago I had um buddy with, and we did the whole challenge bugle and it was, it was awesome. So it, it's, I guess getting a feel for it too. And just the emotion you put into those calls and the timing and when to do it and when not to is probably the biggest thing. And that elk behavior, like you talked about, I think that was the hardest learning curve for me because after that successful hunt, which was pure luck, I mean, I I admit it, it was just pure luck. Uh, I don't know how many frustrations I had after that thinking I could do this or, you know, and thought you got it all figured out. Yeah. And I'd I'd do certain cow calls and those bulls would turn around and run the other way with their harem, you know, and it's like, okay, I got to figure this out. And so so I went back to the books and I started asking around. And by that time, you know, um, there was a lot more resources out there. And so I really started researching it. So, so when you started diving into the books, like, do you had, did you have any big takeaways or any big aha moments? Um, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me, as far as uh, elk hunting goes, would be um, really just learning to win in the different types of bugles. I mean, I didn't even know, you know, the the locate bugle and then the challenge bugle and then all these other things. But I think it was really about the timing, like learning specifically. So important. Yeah. Like just really even diet. Of course, that's the biologist in me too. Is like, I really wanted to hone in on, on the rut and what caused the rut and when's the peak rut and when should you be, um, using these different calls and stuff. And so I think it was really like the science part of it really fascinated me. And I think that's when it clicked for me is like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, use your, your, your brain a little bit and, yeah. and think about this, you know, um, that's probably the biggest thing. And then really it was for me learning to be more patient. Cause I was, super impatient and probably calling way too much. And then mm-hmm. it kind of clicked to me like, Oh, that's what that bull's doing when I'm, when I'm cranking out that bugle at that time, that's why he's responding like yeah. that. That's why he's picking up his cows. And, Cause I was, I would bugle, I'd hear a bugle down the Canyon. He'd have a bunch, you know, in the, um, a bunch of cows in the middle of the rut and the peak of the rut. And I'd hammer away at a bugle and I was so far away. He's like, well, I'm not messing with you. And he'd yeah. end up going miles down the drainage. And I didn't really realize why until I started, you yeah. know, doing homework and realizing, oh, okay, you <laughs> yeah. need to get in his zone or get in his bubble and really tick him off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Dude, yeah, that, the timing is is so important and so hard to, like, convey. Um, we've been doing these, like, these Q&As, and it's cool because, like, in now, you know, if guys are like, oh, this is what happened, and I'm like, well, here's possibly why. Or you can dive into it more, and it's like the timing is important, but there's so many variables to try and try and keep track of like this whole, you know, like I, 
I really do think that the Corey Jacobson or the the Born and Drain's kind of strategy. I do think it's if you just want to kill a good bull, you want to yep. get into into elk, have that experience it is the best option. You know, Sean would argue that you know put the yep. calls away, which is fine. And what if you want to kill the calibers of bull that Sean's killing? I agree. You got to spend stupid amounts of hours behind the glass yep. and cover more miles than you ever thought humanly possible. And then you'll turn up those ones. And so it's like, there's so many v- different variables, but I do think that like for 99.9% of people, the experience they want, the hunt they want, or like just getting into elk, like that is bugling is the way to go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, it's just a totally different experience. And I do, you know, I, I've, been successful a few times now and I, and I do want to kind of up the ante and go for a bigger bull and, and I'm definitely going to be more patient and lay back on some of the calls probably ch- this year. I was going to say, would you change yeah. your tactics at all? I think I will. I think I am. Um, I actually did a little bit uh, uh, last year. I did try to like put put the calls away for a little bit. I wouldn't come out and even mm-hmm. do a locate bugle and I'd just co- cover a lot of country and glass and, and set up. But um, it's so I, country dependent, right? Like if you're... Yeah. I don't know, like somewhere where it's really thick, obviously it's very difficult. Exactly. Do you find that like when you're trying to, I mean, like you're going to, a way to do it is to find more, find country that's more advantageous to that style of hunting. So, you know, if I'm looking at Google earth or whatever, and I'm like, you know, I only want to kill big bulls. Like, obviously I'm not going to pick the area that's hundred percent timber. I want to try to find those open slopes where I can see stuff. But do you think that there's more people there? So I also think in a state like Montana, you can go to places that are thick and no one else is hunting because less people in this state call. So I'm like, man, this is my go-to. I right. can crush it in a place that's 100% timbered. Yep. And Phelps and I have had this conversation when he comes here, he comes to Montana, he's like, yeah, I'm going for a thicker country because there's less people because they all want to hunt places where they can see elk. Yeah. They all want to go to big sky country. Yeah. You know. Um, I think so. So it really comes down to a couple of things. I think number one, I think a huge part of it, and you mentioned this is time, mm. like how much time can you invest in scouting? How much time? Yeah. And number two, and maybe this should be number one is really, what are you trying to get out of it? You know? For sure. Yeah. And that's anything, I guess. And we all want to shoot big bulls, but like part of it for me is I want to shoot a mature bull, but I also want to have that experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I, there's nothing more fun in my opinion and that, you know, and I'm sure, uh, Sean would argue there's nothing more fun than shooting a 400 inch. (laughs) (laughs) And he's he's probably right. Um, but for me, you know, getting into that party and and just having a bugle fest and be able to pull off a herd bull or pick one off when they're, you know, have 30 cows that that's pretty amazing too. Like there's almost nothing in this world better than a complete rut fest. Yes. Where it doesn't even matter if you have a call or not. Yes. It it just wouldn't do anything. You know, just bulls on top of bulls, just screaming. Like everyone in the world should experience that one time. We're just like, oh my God, this is absolutely insane. Yeah. I remember uh, three years ago, I was hunting in one of my my little honey holes back here. And I remember chasing elk and they're just going crazy. And I wasn't even calling, but I'm running around and several opportunities. Just never got a shot off. I think in two days, um, and I'm not a great caller, but I had like 12 encounters with bulls. Most of them, uh, five points, rag horns, and then a couple nice six points. And then 
one afternoon I got tired and they kind of bedded down. I was like, oh, I'm just going to take a nap. And I remember I fell asleep on the hillside and I woke <laughs> up just these elk scream and I roll out and I look to my right and there's like these two bulls fighting like 60 yards away. And then there's these elk bugling those. I mean, that was so cool. And so I get up kind of dazed and confused <laughs> running around and, and like all the noise I was making unbeknownst to me, I turn around, I hear something and just me making that noise and getting my stuff together. A young bull comes charging in and he puts on the skids about like, I swear like 20 yards away. And he's like, Oh crap. <laughs> he turns around and just that experience. I mean, of course I never got a shot off at any of those elk, but like, that experience alone was something I'll never forget, you know? Dude, one of my favorites is the first rut fest I was ever in. And, like, I'm up on this ridge, and I can't, like, I, it sounds like music. Like, it was so faint, but it was so consistent. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that sounds like Mexican dancing music or something weird. And I was like, what is that noise? And I start working down towards it, and all of a sudden I realized it's just bull after bull. They're just on top of each other, just mm-hmm. nonstop. And I'm like, I'm bugling, which is like topical <laughs> now. Like, it was very early on in my own kind of career. Right. Like, bugling. Like, yeah. like, this dude is really good. Yeah. There's three, <laughs> there's like 15 bulls in there bugling. I'm like, hey, come up here. Uh, <laughs> that was so I run down in there and it's just chaos. And I'm like, I'm trying to sneak a little bit. And I, like, I just keep seeing flashes of bulls and I just keep, and they're kind of moving and, and they're probably 60, 70 cows and just bulls circling, Unreal. going nuts. And I remember I sli- I'm slipping in, I'm slipping in, and a bull would run by and I, I, I drew back and like he just kept going. And it was like, okay, <laughs> just keep going. And like, I like, I remember, I remember like watching this bull and then this bull and like, there's just bulls everywhere. And then I think it was, it was. Okay, so a bull, there's, at one point I was surrounded, but I think it was after I shot. So there's a bull that runs by, and I cow call, and I'm like, good enough, you know, six point going down. <laughs> and I shoot, and I watch my arrow just tank under him. And I'm like, that was like, ah, what just happened, you know? And like, bulls are still screaming. Nothing, no one knows. Yeah. It doesn't change anything. They're unfazed. So I'm over there going. looking for my arrow in the middle of a rut fest, <laughs> like, ah, I know I missed, but I, I can't just go shoot another elk. Like, yeah. ah, I have to find my arrow. So I'm like frantically looking for my arrow in the middle of a rut fest. Like if some other hunter came by, they'd be like, what is that guy doing? <laughs> just looking for an arrow. So I'm like, and man, I crossed my mind. So I, I'm like, there's, and there's bulls running around me at this point. So they're just like, they're everywhere. And I'm like, I'm surrounded by bulls and I'm looking for blood, like as frantically as I can. Just or my arrow, like if I could find my arrow and no, and I, I actually remember a bull like steps out like fifty five, and I drew back. I was like, I just can't do it. I right. don't know. And I was at full draw, and I was like, ah, and I had to let down, and I was just like so torn. It was so frustrating. It was best and worst day of my life. And then yeah. we're like walking out of there, just I don't even know what emotion to feel because like this was the greatest moment of mm-hmm. my hunting life so far. And I don't know if I killed an elk or not. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't know what just happened. I know. And then like try tracking in that. It's just like yeah. there's tracks going everywhere. Like it was impossible. We looked the next day for a long time. Ended up finding my arrow, and uh, of course missed. Well, actually, I went. I went back to the cabin that night and drew back, shot, and I was like two feet low. Oh. I don't know what site moved or whatever, but oh, yeah. so frustrating. But that that moment, I hope everyone gets a yeah experience that exactly moment. like i'll never forget that waking up on my bed just <laughs> bull screaming and so where am i 
Yeah, and so I'm like, you know, like literally chasing them, like with my bow, like running from tree to tree, and like yes. I'd rip out a bugle, and then yeah, you know, I, I chased them all the way up until right at dark, and of course I get to a basically a section of private, and it kind of opens up, and of course then they just I'm sitting up on the hill on public there, and they all come piling out, on, and then I could see them all finally, and there was like twelve bulls, two of them just giants. And then out comes about 40, 50 cows. And then I just, you know, as the sun was setting, I sat there on top of the hill and just put my bow down and I just watched them until it got pitch black. And then walking back to, you know, my camp that night, just listening to them. It was just the coolest memory ever, but yet probably one of the most frustrating memories oh, ever because sure. there were some nice bulls in there, but um, just amazing. And that's, for me, that's, that's what it's about. I mean, yeah. I, I, I struggle with that because, like, yeah, I want to kill a 350 bull really bad. Yeah. And I don't know that, like, spending your time calling in every bull in, bull in the woods is the like, most efficient way to do that. Right. So, I don't know. I think this year it'd be fun because this year I think we're gonna, I'm going to take a Patreon to Idaho and, like, I'm going to tag and I'm shooting the first, you know, we're calling an elk. I don't know if I shoot the first elk that steps out, but pretty close yeah. to it. Like, I just want that experience. And I feel like I don't, like, I used to do that a lot more. Is just right. spending a lot of time calling. And I think in the last couple of years, been really focused on trying to kill a giant. And you kind of miss those calling actions. There's like yeah. a few every year, but it's not nearly as many as it used to be when that's all I did was call elk. And I love calling elk. Like it's that's yeah. one of the best parts about elk hunting. Oh, for sure. Calling elk. <laughs> yeah, it's so addicting too. And I, I think that's kind of my goal this year too, is I'm not going to sit here and put a big number on it, but I definitely want to shoot a little bit bigger bull. And, you know, I was definitely preoccupied the last few years. And I think this year I'm, I'm all in, you know, nah. I'm going in and, you know, I got one thing on my mind and that's shooting a real mature bull. And I'm definitely going to try some. Do you care if you call year. it in or spot and stock it? Uh, this year I'm, I'm trying to go in with the mentality that it doesn't matter <laughs> whatever means necessary yeah, to get yeah. it done. Cause I've always been like, Oh, I want to get in the the rep party and call mm -hmm. one in and have that encounter. And, and this year I'm definitely going to mix it up a little bit. So yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I, I can see myself like I will first three fifty bowl, any means necessary. I would love mm -hmm. to just be able to do that. And for no other reason, like I don't care. I don't know. Like to me, it's just like this number that I got to reach. It's a goal. Like just finding one. Cause I've only seen a number of them in my life. You know, right. like I, the 400 is so out there that I don't, I've never even seen right. one. So I don't really, like, it's like an extreme goal. It's uh, a unicorn. Yeah. But I could see myself wanting to be able to call one in like, Oh yeah. You know what I mean? That'd be the ultimate, right? Yeah. Like call it 351. If you can, yeah. Especially if you can like pick it off and, you know, get in the middle of the herd when they're all going on the satellite mm -hmm. bulls are running around and yeah, that would be like the ultimate. If I could paint a picture of what it would be yeah. in kind of that scenario, you know? I mean, the ultimate hunt is like, the rut fest, but where you get to call out a herd bull, you can call a herd bull away from his hole and, and get his herd herd bull away from his herd and kill him. That's like yep. the ultimate hunt. And that's like one of the hardest things to do. And that, oh, sure. that's just, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in those cases, it's usually easier just to stalk the herd or follow the herd, not make your presence known, you know? Yep. And if, you know, <laughs> that's the thing is like, you can be the most diehard out guy in the world, if you're following a herd of elk that has three satellites and they're all bugling 24 seven, there is no point in you blowing a call. Like, yep. it's, you know, exactly. you gotta, you gotta know what to do in that situation. Right. Uh, 
getting me all excited. Yeah. I know. How many days? No. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're rounding the corner, though. No, we're getting there. I mean, it's, uh, shoot, you can start scouting out. Yeah, I've been out. As a teacher, you should be able to scout all the time. Yeah, in the summer. Uh, that is one of the perks. Uh, you, you get a few weeks off in the summer. And, yeah. Uh, definitely get after it in the summer it can make up for it and then i think that's the the biggest thing kind of getting back or coming full circle to you know tactics for guys who don't have a ton of time is I've, i think i've heard you talk about this too it's like i i agree like some of the best hunters you can put them in any area and they're gonna do well and they're gonna mm-hmm. figure it out but if you're a guy with a limited amount of time like me i have found like if i really hone in on a couple spots and oh, i only have you know i know i'm only gonna have um a five-day window, I might get to take a couple of vacation days and I got a five-day hunt. I'm definitely going to focus on an area I know because it's very valuable to me. That time is so precious. I can't take three, four days figuring out an area mm. and, and then trying to capitalize because by then I'm back at work. And so for me, you know, I've gotten to know a couple of areas like really well. Like I, I know where these elk bed, I know where they rut at and they have, you know, two, three different areas where they're going to be concentrated for the rut. And if they get bumped, this is the drainage they're going to go to. And so I think that's a tip for guys who don't have a lot of time. And that's really not. Which is most people, right? Yeah. So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, like committing to an area versus being mobile because of my thought. And this is, I mean, kind of cliche because I spent the last couple of years being very, very deep in the mountains, which it, there's a point to that. I also think there's a really good time and place to be mobile or mm-hmm. just be able to move, be mobile, um, right. whether that's hiking in or truck camping or whatever, whatever it may be. What's your thought on mo- mobility versus remoteness in like your, your case where like, or anybody with limited time per se? Yeah, I think um, for me, what I, what I've had the best luck with in my limited time is, I do a lot, um, actually do have a cabin, which is nice. So I have a base camp mm. and I like to, I've found sometimes I'm more effective, you know, and I can cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. And so coming back to base camp, getting a really good night's rest and whatever, and then hitting it hard. And then I'll, I'll have plan A, plan B, plan C. And I know that whole general area enough. When I say general area, I'm talking, you know, 10, 12 mile area. And once I take off, I know, these elk at this time of year typically i have it down now where i know like the first week of september they're typically over here mm-hmm. and by the second and third week they're either in this drainage or this drainage and then as we push into october they're typically moving into this drainage and so uh, you know I, and you find that pretty consistent year over year yeah and in, in this particular area and i'm sure it's different area mm-hmm. yeah, i've just been very fortunate to to find this area that doesn't get a ton of pressure and so it's pretty remote um and then uh so I'm pretty aggressive though, too. Like when it comes, I don't have a whole lot of time. Uh, I know you talked a lot. I was following you when you were uh, talking to yourself on your hunt last year, <laughs> oh <my. laughs> uh, which is very entertaining. I found, <laughs> but I know you sat there and you watched those elk forever and, mm-hmm. you know, and do I go or do I not? And do I go? And I'm definitely one of those guys who like, if I see it, just give me an inch and I'm mm-hmm. going to go for it. You know, and I kind of have to though, because I can't sit in the woods yeah. for ten days right now. Anyway, no, so. there's 
pros and cons to both. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? And, and that's kind of where I like, uh, when you listen to Corey Jacobson talk and you, so you blow that opportunity, you go on to the next one, yeah. but you know, you're probably not going to kill a 350 bull doing that either. But if you're in the, no. and also if you're in the Bob, like you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, the reality mm-hmm. is like, mm-hmm. you're limited by your foot. I mean, yep. you can ride horses in the next drainage river. Yep. And so that, that's a little bit of it. And that's why I do think, you know, if you have limited time, I am 100% for like, Hey, let's make it happen or make it over one or the other, yep. but let's make something. And when I, I, like when I was cutting my teeth and I had limited time, you know, there's a number of years where I worked really hard, but I would only have a few days mm-hmm. and it was like, I, you make it happen or it's, it's either go time. Yeah. It's go time. Like yeah. we're screw this up or, you know, whatever. Cause yep. like something's got to happen quickly because you can spend so many hours like playing with an elk or not playing with an elk. And, and I do think there's some validity to like not letting an elk have time to think about a situation. Right. Like, yeah, they are big, dumb forest horses, but they're sometimes really smart. And I think if you give them time to think about a situation, if they're not fit, this is especially true if they're not fired up and hot and crazy. Right. You know, if you give them all the time, you know, that bull that bugles and then he won't bugle anymore. And he's right. He's in that drainage. And like, you're trying to call him out. And like, it just does, you know, call setups that take four or five hours. Yeah, like you're exactly. just giving him time to analyze what's going on or think about it. Yeah. And I'd rather just rush in there and yep, like, make what, him decide. That's what I found too, is like, uh, especially in those situations, if I hear a bull way off in there, I mean, yeah, I'll try it for a little bit, but I'm I'm going head first. Yeah, typically that's the. So you like to go and challenge or cow call? Well, it depends on the time of the year, and I yeah. think that's the biggest thing I've learned. I used early on, I was definitely more of a cow caller, mm-hmm. um, but you know, and I think this is some of the influence and in just listening to guys like Jacobson talk about it. Um, I've definitely must say I've been hugely the last two bulls I killed with my bow were challenges, yeah. like coming in, getting in tight. Um, sneaking in quick and fast, playing the wind right, and then just hammering with the challenge when, when you when the time's right, you know. Um, Is there scenarios where you wouldn't do that? Um, maybe a time of year, maybe you know, like say early September. Yeah, I wouldn't definitely wouldn't do it early September. I think. Uh, so hypothetically, you go in. I mean, this year we don't even open till like the seventh. But yeah, it's later this year. So say you go in opening weekend, it's the seventh eighth of September bull pipes off once in a hole you beagle again he doesn't answer what's your go-to plan um i'm probably gonna make a move to get a little closer but not too close um what's too close well can i see the bull can i not see the, you can't bull? See the bull can't see him all timber it's all working up a timber ridge bull beagles in a drainage i mean it's nothing crazy what time of day 9 a.m 9 a.m <laughs> and I'm on top of the ridge. Yeah, on the ridge. Hmm. Well, he's somewhere between the bottom <laughs> and bottom third of the next ridge, maybe. Can't really tell for sure. Bottom third of the next ridge. See, I'm picturing in my head the, exactly where I hunt, and I've have had this happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing a scenario where this has happened to me before, yeah. too. Um, you know, bull pipes off once, says, yep. and then doesn't, and then you can't get him to say anything else. Right. Um, he could be coming in silent. It could be. Um, and I've, I've made that mistake. will be the first to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, and I think that's where my biggest weakness is. I'm a little impatient and I'd like to think that I'd be a little patient. I'd let it play out for three, four hours and just kind of yeah. see where it goes. But 
most of the time I dive off in there and I'm making a run for it yeah. and getting in closer and I'll keep calling and keep calling. Then I'll probably usually bump them. That's usually how that plays out. <laughs> so, it depends on how thick it is too. Like if yeah. you know that drainage, like, God, it's a thick, yeah. nasty hole. Like I want to see if he'll come up here. Yeah. This is where it's so hard because, you know, we could sit here and like say, let's, let's make it happen, make it dead or make it, go away right um but then that scenario right there i would probably sit there i'm like let's see what happens let's yeah, just I think play it that's something i've learned is that uh, you do need to play that out a little bit and sit uh, back where and it's a temperature thing like if he's not gonna yep. if he if he's not gonna answer me that if he's only gonna answer me once that tells me a lot about answer me twice right so if he answers twice but then shuts up he's far more interested than once once is it here i am but now i'm not gonna say anything yeah yep I agree. Answer twice is like he. I could probably go down there and get him fired up. Maybe, yeah. You know, but yeah. There's so many, so many variables there. But again, I would still probably. I would even if I. Man, so many variables. So like, if hypothetically I was going to another area that I'm like, okay, there's there's supposed to be bulls up here. Then I'm really got. I got to think outside the box. Like, well, is this a satellite or is this a big bull? Is this an area that it's possibly a big bull hung up by himself? Um, was there elk in here a week ago? Is there usually elk in here early in September? Right. Cause there's areas, you know, that I know where I hunt. I'm like, there's always a bunch of satellites hanging around on this face right here right. or a bunch of small bulls. So it's probably one of those small bulls in that case. I'm not going to mess with it all. Yeah, and I think that's where coming to know your area too. True. Like I was just picturing the drainage. I like to hunt and if I know it comes from over here at this time of year, I typically know that's probably just a raghorn, a group of raghorns. Yep. But if I hear it somewhere off over here, it's probably worth my time. You know? Well, and so it's funny you say that because the exact scenario that I was thinking of was a place deep in the wilderness where I worked up, I looked at the topo and there's a hole that's not accessible. There's no mm-hmm. trail. There's no nothing. And it is, a nightmare to get to. And I worked up in there and I just crack over this ridge and it was kind of half snow and half whatever early season still bull pipes off down there. I know there's no cows in this drainage. Right. And I'm like, exactly. I'm like, it's gotta be a good bull. And it may, maybe, maybe not. Like that's generally just how we think. It's like, Oh, deep, dark Canyon back away from where the rest of the elk have been. Could be a good one, you know? And so I'm going to play it. I'm going to play it like that. Right. And see what happens. No, I agree. But there's definitely other places, like you say, where I'm like, there's always a bunch of small bulls. And you never know. It could go either way. It could have been a small bull yeah. in the in the nasty hole, and it could have been a giant. Yeah, exactly. Upward. Right when you think you have it figured out, <laughs> the exact opposite yeah. happens anyway. Yeah. So it's like. And on September 7th, they could act identical. Yes. You know? Like it could just be an absolute slob of a 370 bull that goes, ooh. Right. And never says another word. And it could be a just a spike. For all I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's just so many variables and so many, you know. Dude, that's, and that's the tough part. And what I think is the toughest part about teaching people is like there's too many variables. It's good for people to hear these stories and hear how we think about right. it. But, man, try explaining that to someone who – try explaining oh, yeah. that to a three-year-old. It's not going to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, this could be the case. This could also be the case. It could be the exact opposite of what I just said. Uh, it's that's what's tough about it, but that's why I think like elk hunting is definitely the chess match. You know, 
Oh yeah, it's definitely you're always trying to be that one step ahead and plan ahead and yeah. like, okay, they're moving this way, it's this time of day. I know the thermals are shifting now and so I gotta make this move. They're gonna head up to this north patch of timber to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh he's got I know he has this many cows with him and I know there's a couple satellites and so you know. One thing I I think I've picked up is uh when you talk to people like when I when I talk to people and they say, Well, you know, what would you do in this scenario? I think asking why is really important. When you look at a scenario Absolutely. and here's what's happening, think why? What's going on? What could, like what's the bigger scenario? And I think when you understand elk behavior yes. and you go back into those biology books, then you can start mm-hmm. to be like, Okay, why are they doing this? Yep. What's going on here? Yeah, and that's kind of what we're referencing earlier. And I think that's when it kind of clicked for me is like when I started when you started thinking deeper and mm. like trying to put it all together and look at that big picture at like, okay, why did he do that? Why did why did he do that? Why did he yeah. um beagle like that or why did he, you know, and so learning to understand their language and their train of thought is huge and you know, just there's just so much to it. How complex do you feel like it is? <sighs> I think sometimes we overplay it, it. We overthink yeah. it. And sometimes yeah. we underthink it. Yep. I think so. I mean, at the end of the day, there's just, it's biology and they're creatures. Right. Um, but even science will yeah. tell you time and time, <laughs> there, there's really not an exact science though no. either. You know, there's very few laws in the, in the universe that yeah. hold true every single time. And That's very true. when you're talking about biology and even just human form and function, I mean, there's always the outliers, you yeah. know, and there's always these things. And so, I mean, there's I do a, think as a whole though, like elk are, pre, elk are pretty predictable. They're, they're not predictable as white tail guys like to think of like, well, why don't you just pattern them and get in front of them? It right. doesn't really work that way. Right. Um, but it, on a general rule, you're like, well, this bull, these elk are going here to bed and they're coming yep. down and feeding here. Yep. You know, like that's pretty predictable. Now, yep. At any given day, they could just switch two canyons for no reason. Right. But anyway, and there's, a, there's the, probably some rhyme or reason. The general assumptions you can always make, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they need feed, right? They need cover. Yeah. And then different times of year, you know, uh, they're going to flip that switch and they're going to act a little bit different, you yeah. know? And I think that's a big part of just, just knowing when. Um when to make those moves and when to hold back is a big part. And I think you can generalize some assumptions. And I know I've learned that I hunt a lot different the first week of September than I do the third week in September. So true. You know, I totally change my style, you know? So with being a guy that has very limited time, if you could choose your five days, Mm -hmm. which would you choose? I've already marked on the calendar for next year. So I know (laughs) this this coming September, um, I just, because of what we talked about a little, I'm going to, you know, the typical, the peak of the rut um, you know, when you look at the, and just even understanding what triggers the peak of the rut, I think there's a lot of myths about that too. Sometimes, you know, it's the amount of, uh, light entering the cows and mm-hmm. they go into estrus at certain times. So typically this year, I think it falls what 19th, 18th, 19th of September, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of times I like to hunt, uh, the few days leading up to that point right before it, yeah. if I'm going to pick. So if I was picking this year. I would say I'm going to hunt, you know, the 15th to the 19th or something like that Yeah, for me, just because I feel like that's my best chance to capitalize on a nice bull. Does moon phase go into that selection? I think it can. I think moon phase, in my opinion, um, 
affects more how active they're going to be at night and how much longer they're going to stay out in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think moon phase has really anything to do with the science of the rut, in my opinion. I think that really is a science thing where uh, the elk is triggered by the number of cows, you know, going, coming into estrus. And that really is like the time of the year. And so I think you can pretty firmly pin that down that the peak rut is typically, and I know some people probably write in and say I'm wrong on this, but you know, September 18th to 20th, somewhere in there Mm -hmm. is usually the peak rut. When I say peak rut, that means the most cows are coming into estrus, right? So that's when you're going to have the bulls probably fired up the most and then, you know, the rut fest, the rut fest is going to be somewhere in there. Um, so I think if you hunt a little bit before that, sometimes, and those, uh, those bulls are definitely intrigued and they might not have their harems completely. And it might be a little easier to call them in. Yeah. I think that'd be my reason for hunting that time. I like that time frame as well. If only the one problem I've had, and I think this is more true when I was spending more time calling elk and being mobile and mm-hmm. hunting, generally speaking, areas that those elk got hunted by someone else. It, the problem I always had, because I used to hunt Idaho the last week of season, and the problem I always had is that the cows were just picking me off like crazy. Pains in the butt. Bulls yeah. were stupid. Stupid. But mm-hmm. the cows, man, they were spooky. You know, and like, it's really hard to sneak up. Yep. Once they're herded up, you're trying to get a herd bull that's got 30 sets of eyes, and they've been bumped right. five, six times that year. So they just, anything bumps them. That's always been my struggle, but yeah, I, I like the leading up to the rep. Moon phase is like I, I've had it go both ways for me, so I don't, I don't really care because I hunt as many days as I possibly can. I don't really care right. what the, that's going on. There may change some stuff, but I've also had it to where bulls will rut heavier in a full moon, so they're just going bananas because you know they're up all night. Yep. Um, that can change things. And so like, if you're really good, you can be right there at daylight yep. and it's still going. I mean like, Oh yeah. Cause they got to go to bed and, and it's, it's almost like they're so exhausted and you know, it's just, it's chaos. Um, so I do kind of like that. But I think like that whole night of chaos on a full moon night, <laughs> you know, you can be right there within striking distance at daylight and be able to capitalize on that. I also think that middle of the day is not terrible. Um, I don't think they're up all day, but I've had that too. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. The, one of the big bulls I hunted, uh, last year, like, I think he was up for two or three days straight. He yeah. would fall asleep. Like he'd be bugling and I'd watch him as <laughs> so fall asleep and then like just wake up and bugle. Like he just stayed, like just going nuts. Yeah. That reminds uh, me of a story of, uh, <laughs> I heard this bull kind of the same thing. He was just going bananas. And this was a, when I was in this new area. And I was with a buddy, and he's kind of showing me around, and he looks over, and I keep hearing this bull, and I look at him. He goes, don't go over there, man. He goes, <laughs> he's just like, just don't do it. Like, you'll be there for days, yeah. and, and you'll never make it out. And I was like, man, I, that bull's just going nuts. And this bull was bugling. Like, it was like clockwork. I'm not kidding. Like, every 20 seconds, I was just hammering. And I was like, I got to the point where I couldn't take it. And he looks at me and goes, fine, but I'm not going with you. <laughs> so I take off sprinting across, not sprinting, but across the canyon. And oh, uh, I did call him in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah blew it, though, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it was just one of those things. Like, he was literally, and that was all day, because I sat there and listened to him from across the canyon for three hours. Yeah. From, you know, all the way until, like, 10 
at 10 in the morning or whatever it was. And he was still going. I was like, how can I sit here? I was like, I got to go. Yeah. And he was, it was craziest thing. It was every 20 seconds he was just hammering and no other bulls were being, it was just him. He was just fired up. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they just go nuts. Yeah. Get crazy about it. Uh, we were going to talk about, I want to hear the story on, um, Hugh Glass. Oh, Hugh Glass and John so Hugh, Coulter, yeah. So Hugh Glass, I don't yeah. know how he got onto this topic. Transition shift here. Hugh Glass yeah. is the <laughs> guy that the story... Um, the Revenant. Revenant was which based a, off of, right? Yeah, which so, is a total joke. <laughs> that's what I want to hear. Not that great of a movie, I didn't think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's entertaining. Um, Hollywoodized, for sure. Which, I mean... Yeah, I mean, which I guess you kind of expect, but... So did you kind of follow uh, Hugh Glass before? Well before. Like, yeah, I obsessed about, since I was a little kid, with Mountain Men. Okay. And so, like, I knew the stories of Hugh Glass and John Coulter and Kit Carson and Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. And all these were my legends. These are my heroes. And so, when I finally heard they're coming out with The Revenant, uh, which is a book, I read Mm it, um, it's like, oh, this is going to be great, you know? Leo, you know, <laughs> and, uh, I was so disappointed. Really? I mean, it I feel was like, that's a lot of the time though. I know it is, but like they weren't even remotely close really? to his real life story. And, and I know what they were trying to do. I mean, I think he won an Academy Award for it, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the actor, Leonardo oh, DiCaprio, yeah, right. whatever. Yeah. But like he did parts of it good. I felt like the bear attack was somewhat realistic and how it went down and, Real yeah, life. that'll make you not want to hunt in Montana. Yeah, that's scary. And yeah, just the other <laughs> oh, day. Oh, just the other day. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> anyway, um so anyway, Hugh Glass. He's uh I don't even know where to start. If they would have followed his actual real life story, it, it's truly amazing. What's the real life story? Well, I mean, he the guy, for goodness sakes, he gets kidnapped by pirates. Off the coast. Oh, of that's right. I did New, read that. New Orleans or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And he's held captive by pirates and he gets close to the shore one day and he jumps off and he swims. I mean, it's just an amazing story. Yeah, he gets kid- doesn't he get kidnapped by pirates and then jumps and then gets... Yeah. It was like out of Texas somewhere. Or, yeah, it was somewhere on the Gulf like Coast. Gulf Coast, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So then ends up getting... He doesn't know anyone. He doesn't have anything, right? And then He has nothing. Gets... And at that time when he was kidnapped, he lost everything. Like he was... I th- if I'm not mistaken... He might have been like engaged, yeah, whatever, okay. and had it going on. Got get kidnapped, comes back, finds it's like out years later. Year years later, later, yeah, yeah, a long time. But comes back, then he gets um, basically adopted by a family of uh, natives. Yeah, and he lives with them for a while, and then turns in working for a fur company and whatever. And then the real story goes down. Um, man, there's some truths or parallels. Like he did obviously get mauled by a grizzly. Yeah. Um, he did get left there, but like the whole story in the the movie is he's out for this bloodlust vengeance the whole time. And he had those thoughts. Don't get me wrong. But like when it came down to it, um, you know, his wife wasn't killed. Like they added that part. Um, <laughs> and all these other things like killed it. Then they kill his son in the movie too, or something like that. I can't uh, remember. I'm trying to remember. There's a kid. Yeah. Uh, they killed the kid. I don't even think he had a kid in real life. Oh, but <laughs> anyway, like the real story goes, he does he, that 
story back. First of all, it's in South Dakota, not in the Canadian mountains, wherever yeah. they filmed it. And so yeah. it's a little and, bit different. Uh, yeah, a little bit different landscape, but I, I get that. Mountains are pretty. But <laughs> <laughs> he gets back and he actually does catch up to the guy who let him lay there. Um, and he gets there and he looks him in the eye and then he, he can't do it. Oh, really? Yeah, he can't. And so he never did kill the guy that left him to lay. Like in the movie, it's this big dramatic scene and yeah. shoot out and yeah. knock down Drake out. But in real life, he gets there and he he kind of forgives him and then just moves on with his life. That would have been a better movie. Well, like if you would have told the whole story. And yeah. I'm missing so many pieces. We only have so much time here. But yeah. I mean, the guy like getting abducted by pirates and kidnapped and living out at sea for all these years. And then he jumps off and he swims back to the coast. And then if I'm not mistaken, he gets kidnapped again and then he ends up being adopted by this tribe. He's kidnapped. I by thought he was, yeah, I thought that like was that. something like that. Yeah. So I mean, kidnapped he, by the twice. Yeah. yeah. He gets kidnapped by this tribe and he gets taken hostage. And if I'm not mistaken, they kill his best friend that he was kidnapped with yeah. and they let him live for whatever reason. And then they end up basically adopting him as a brother. That's crazy. And so he learns the language. He learns how to trap with the natives. Then he goes out on these expeditions and he works for the fur company. And then, and then he gets mauled by the grizzly. And Do then, you think kids today are missing out because they don't have like these old mountain men heroes to look up to? I think they are. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I think so too, man. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even have Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah, another great movie, <laughs> a great book, and yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like I think about that a little bit. It's like, what do kids today look up to? It's almost like those guys are villainized now too. Yeah, unfortunately. Like the whole Wild West, it was kind of villainized, even though like we looked up to those guys as heroes. Yeah. Kind of weird. I don't know what that says about us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll appreciate it. I got to give a shout out to, uh, we're just going to call it a podcast sponsor because uh, John Schultz is uh, one of our uh, Patreons, actually, and a huge fan of the podcast. And uh, so he sent me these beers that we're drinking. So we're Lancaster Brewing Co., and I had the Gold Star Pilsner, and it was really good. Yeah, the Wandering Wit, which was fantastic. Dude, he said, like, I, this is a few podcasts worth, because I don't think we could drink all these in one. But, man, there's some crazy beers. The Hop Hog IPA. I was going to make you drink this one, Double Chocolate Milk Stout. <laughs> not, I'm not a Milk Stout guy. But, yeah. So oh, They're excellent. Kudos. Kudos. Thanks, yeah. Lancaster Brewing. Making Wapti Wednesday possible. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, Justin. Appreciate it, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for tuning in to Wapiti Wednesday. If you guys have questions that either we didn't cover in this episode or you just like to see in future episodes, be sure to drop us a line at info at richoutdoors.net or be sure to join the Rich Outdoors Insiders Group on Facebook for more information as well as some really cool gear giveaways. Thanks for listening, guys.